if you'll turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, we'll read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll turn over to John chapter 20 and read the first 10 verses of John 20. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it. To his disciples. Turn over to John chapter 20. We'll read verses 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word and what amazing news. Thank you for Jesus, for his death, his burial, and Yes, his resurrection. Please help us as we consider and contemplate this afresh today. And Lord, we pray that if there are any in our midst that at this moment are not in right relationship with you because they have not repented of their sins, they have not trusted in Jesus, they have not placed their faith in him, I pray that you would open their eyes and grant them repentance and faith this day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last time we considered the burial of Jesus. Now, if the Gospels all ended there, if all the Gospels came to the end at Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, then the story of Jesus Christ would indeed be a tragedy. In fact, the term Christ being associated with Jesus would be a misnomer. In the words of Kostenberger and Taylor, they said, if this is how the story ended, Jesus would have been just another failed messianic pretender who clashed with the Roman Empire and paid the ultimate price for his folly. But the story is not yet over. 
and the world is about to be turned upside down. New creation is about to break forth into the midst of the old creation, and nothing will ever, ever be the same. So today on this Sunday morning, we come in our Harmony of the Gospels to the most momentous Sunday ever, what we remember as Resurrection Sunday. The very reason why we choose to gather here on Sundays for worship as a church body. We know that through the Old Testament days, the Sabbath, being Saturday, was honored as a memorial to God's finished work of creation. But now, as a memorial to Christ's finished work of redemption, we meet together on the first day of the week. We meet together on Sundays, what we know as the Lord's Day. The Sunday upon which all of our hope is based came to pass nearly some 2,000 years ago. And the only reason why we can call the Friday preceding that Sunday Good Friday is because what happened on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus would rise from the dead on the first day of the week. He would inaugurate a new creation, just as God had in his original creative work started on day one. So now we see Jesus rising from the dead on day one, establishing and inaugurating a new creation. And this, then the whole morning began with the news of a glorious, empty tomb. Now we've read all four Gospels this morning because each of them shares details from that morning that are at variance with one another. We've seen this happen throughout our Harmony of the Gospels and as a result, as we've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, as we walk through the life ministry of Jesus, we've seen the rich picture that we're presented from four perspectives on these events. And we've also noticed their unity as we've worked through this together as well. The way the differences blend together really is akin to the way that voices, when they're properly singing with one another, can make har- harmonious sounds, different sounds, but which work together, creating something strikingly beautiful. Now we must admit that there are times when the harmony is more difficult to discern for us, which has led some people even to question the inspiration and the reliability of the Bible altogether. This is one of the reasons why we embarked on this journey of harmonizing the Gospels, was to be able to take some moments and reassert just the trustworthiness of the scriptures. You see, each age of history has seen various attacks come against the Bible, and our age is no different from that. But is it any surprise to us? What was it that Satan was doing in the Garden of Eden? What form did Satan's temptations take with Eve from the very, very beginning? How did he start? He began by introducing doubt. Remember the question? Indeed, has God said? Indeed, has God truly said? And then it's not long before he's saying, he moves quickly from trying to arouse some doubt and question to just flat-out lying and denials. You shall surely not die. God knows in the day that you eat from this tree that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan's up to the same strategy today. The tactics might be a little bit different, 
The lingo might have changed, but his goal is the same. He desires to undermine the truth, to insert unbelief, to insert skepticism, and to insert any lies he can at any and every turn. He desires to lead people to distrust God and what God has said so that they'll listen to the lies that Satan has to offer. Attacks on the Bible have continued through the ages. Yet in the words of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we read these words in the fourth verse. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth. Still, his kingdom is forever. We know the Lord will ultimately triumph, and he will save a great host who will, by his grace, take God at his word. But there is a battle raging, and we've seen far too many churches that have compromised on the authority of God's word. Far too many churches that have denied the clarity of God's word. Far too many churches that refuse to submit to God's word. How else do you explain that there can be churches, I put this in quotations, churches today that accept homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle? Even accept it within their clergy and leadership. They've replaced God's word with public and popular opinion. And they sadly abandoned the very gospel by which sinners particularly homosexuals and all sinners, can be saved. You see, it's our love for homosexuals that drives us to call them to repent and to believe in Jesus, for to leave them in that lifestyle is to leave them in their sin. But God has much better things. By the way, it's the same love that drives us to share the gospel with anyone who's engaged in any sort of immorality or sin, whether it be lying or disobedience to parents or whatever the thing might be. We know that the wages of sin is death. But the beautiful thing is that God, by a marvelous gift of his grace, has provided the one and only means of salvation. He's given us what we could not have gained on our own. Something we couldn't have done, he has provided. Far too much supposed preaching fails to decry the wickedness of sin. And then, as we're after having done that, to present then a glorious Savior... It, it's, it's not really all that curious to me that people don't understand their need for a Savior today. They don't see why they need Jesus because they haven't had their sin exposed. Why would you need a Savior to save you from sin if you don't think you are a sinner? If you've just redefined all of your behaviors and lifestyle as being acceptable and not a problem. The Bible is barely mentioned in much of the speaking happening on Sunday morning, sadly. Perhaps it's because it's thought that the Bible isn't relevant to the 21st century or it just doesn't fit well with some people's own construction of the church. Maybe there's a lack of confidence in God's ability to do what he says he will do through his word. I think that is one of the things that's sadly missing in much preaching today is that note of authority. And and don't get me wrong, it's not that the person speaking has some supposed authority of their own. Not that I here speaking have some inherent authority. The only authority I have to bring is that authority which God's word has because it comes from him. 
long as the preaching that is done is God's word, then it carries his authority. You see, if you're convinced that the Bible is the word of God, then reading and teaching the Bible comes with a great deal of weightiness and reverence. So sadly, I think the problem in many places today is not merely a loss of confidence from the people attending to the word of God, but sadly, in some congregations, it's a loss of confidence by those who are in leadership in churches regarding what the word of God is and can do. I wonder if among the arsenal that the devil is utilizing today are doubts that arise from supposed discrepancies in the Bible. I'm sure you've probably come across one of these sorts of websites before, some atheistic blog in which they've listed all of the apparent discrepancies in the Bible, all of the contradictions, and here's all the reasons why I don't trust the Bible, and the Bible is full of lies and all the rest. There are differences that are made out to be contradictions, which supposedly are um, impossible to reconcile with one another. So, this morning, before I go any further, I want to consider two of the most common objections made against uh, the Bible's inerrancy in its record of the events surrounding the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, what we've just read here this morning. I'm spending a little bit of extra time here today to emphasize yet again the trustworthiness of God's Word. Here's one of the objections that comes to this text, to this, this harmony of text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus rises on a Sunday. All of the Gospels are very clear the first day of the week. It literally reads the first of the Sabbaths. They, they counted weeks by Sabbaths. And so their way of saying is that the first of the Sabbath, which meant the first day of the week, the first day following the Sabbath, there on Sunday morning. Now, the, many skeptics have said, well, isn't that, only the second day after Jesus was buried. Yet, doesn't the Bible say repeatedly that Jesus would rise again on the third day? Didn't Jesus himself say the same? Yes, the Bible is clear that Jesus rose on the third day, and Jesus prophesied repeatedly that he would rise on the third day. Let me just give you a quick sampling of those. Matthew 16, 21, he says, I'll be raised up on the third day. Matthew 17, 23, he will be raised up on the third day. Matthew 20, verse 19, and on the third day he will be raised up. Luke 13, 32, the third day I reach my goal. Luke 18, 33, the third day he will rise again. Even the Jews had heard these statements from Jesus and they're concerned about it. Remember, this is what we saw last time together in Matthew 27, verse verse 64. They go to Pilate asking for guards that they can set in front of the tomb because they're concerned that Jesus had said something about this third day resurrection. And they don't believe that Jesus is actually going to rise from the dead, but they're concerned the disciples might come and steal Jesus' body. So they want to put guards there to prevent anything like that from happening. An angel who comes to this in this account in Luke 24, verse 7, says, Don't you remember what he said? The Son of Man will be delivered in the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Jesus will reiterate this fulfillment to his disciples after rising from the dead in Luke 24, 46, when he says, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Peter mentions the third day in his preaching to Cornelius and a group of Gentiles in Acts 10. Paul speaks of Jesus' resurrection on the third day, according to the scriptures, as one of the matters of first importance that he delivered to the church at Corinth. So both before and after Jesus' resurrection, that phrase, on the third day, is being, being repeated over and over and over again. 
Now, obviously, if these things have been said before the resurrection and they're being said after the resurrection by people who were present at both times, they had no problem with this phrase. They didn't see a contradiction with this being on the third day. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with our definitions. The problem is not one of biblical internal consistency. The problem is of our own making. The problem is not with the history of the Bible, but the means by which we reckon days today versus how they counted days in Jesus' day. We normally consider days on the basis of 24-hour periods starting at midnight. Jews count days from evening to evening. And any part of a day is considered a day. Jesus gives up his spirit on Friday before sundown. Matter of fact, there's a rush, remember, by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to get Jesus into the ground before sunsets. Why? Because the Sabbath begins at sunset. They have to get him in the ground before then. So they hastily get him into the ground before then. So he's put into the ground on what day? Friday. That's one day. The Sabbath, Saturday, he's in the ground. And it's not until Sunday morning, the third day, that Jesus rises again from the dead. This kind of day counting isn't, shouldn't be so foreign or strange to us either. Should I go on a trip in which I arrive somewhere on Tuesday? It might even be late afternoon or whatever. And then I spend the night there in a hotel. I stay the next day, Wednesday. And then I stay that next night. And then I come back on Thursday, even if it was sometime like 10 a.m. in the morning, 11 in the morning. Wouldn't we all say I went on a two-night trip, a three-day trip? I was gone three days and two nights. Even though it was just parts of those beginning and ending days. We even talk this way with travel itineraries, it's not that strange to us at all. It's just a wooden reading of 24-hour periods that of our, is a problem of our own making, not a problem to the scriptures. The other thing I want to spend a little bit of time talking about is the objection about just this initial discovery of the tomb. There's a smattering of details, and I want to spend a little time with this because I want to also construct for you all... Um, a potential chronology of events between the four Gospels here. Now, here's how the objection kind of goes. The initial discovery at the empty tomb seems a bit jumbled. Who would present, uh, who was there present upon the first discovery of the tomb? How many women were there? Luke says that it was a group of ladies. Mark mentions three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Matthew mentions two, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, presumably Mary the mother of James. And John mentions only one, Mary Magdalene. How is it possible for Mary Magdalene, here's the further question, to have come with the other ladies to anoint Jesus with spices, as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke explain, and an angel then announced that Jesus has risen, Yet for this same Mary Magdalene to run to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, as recorded in John's gospel, and report that Jesus' body is missing and she doesn't know where it's gone. Didn't the angels tell them that he's risen? So why is she going to John and Peter? Bring it to that, you know, Peter and John. What, why is he going to them saying that we don't know where his body is? Mark says that the ladies fled with fear and they told no one on these matters. Yet Matthew and Luke say that the ladies left with fear and great joy and told the disciples. How do all these details fit together? 
Don't these constitute some sort of contradiction? Well, I believe these are important questions. And in providing an answer, I want to shed some light on how we ought to handle similar sorts of questions. So before I go about giving a chronological harmonization of these events, I want to, first of all, bring all of your attention to, I think, a very important document, one that I hope that you've already seen before, but if you haven't, I'm going to recommend it to your reading. It's actually found in the appendices to our church, longer church confession, but you can also find it online very easily if you type in the following words, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Amidst some more recent attacks on the authority and trustworthiness of the scriptures, nearly 300 evangelical scholars met in Chicago to publish a statement on biblical inerrancy. And they did this in the blessed year of 1978. So it happens to be the year I was born. It also happens to be near the place that I was born. I was born just outside of Chicago. Now, they would publish two more statements as well, one on biblical hermeneutics and 1982, and then one on biblical application in 1986. Now, while the whole statement is very much worth your reading, and is included, as I mentioned, in the appendices to our church, Longer Confession of Faith, you can find that even online on our website, I'm going to share just a really quick representation of a couple of the sections of that statement, because I think it becomes helpful in discussing what we're trying to do here. In the preface to this statement, we read the following. The authority of scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. We gladly acknowledge that many who deny the inerrancy of Scripture do not display the consequences of this denial in the rest of their belief and behavior, and we are conscious that we who confess this doctrine often deny it in life by failing to bring our thoughts and deeds, our traditions and habits, into subjection to the divine word. We invite response to this statement from any who see reason to amend its affirmations about Scripture by the light of Scripture itself under whose infallible authority we stand as we speak. We claim no personal infallibility, important statement there, for the witness that we bear. And for any help which enables us to strengthen this testimony to God's word, we shall be grateful. They go on to define what we mean when we say the words that the Bible is inerrant or the Bible is infallible. Infallible signifies the quality of neither misleading nor being misled, and so safeguards, in categorical terms, the truth that Holy Scripture is sure, safe, and a reliable guide and rule in all matters. We can trust the Bible. Similarly, inerrant signifies the quality that the Bible is free from falsehood or mistake or error. And so safeguards the truth that the Holy Scripture is entirely true and trustworthy in all of its assertions. They make another statement. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teaching. No less in what it states about God's acts in creation as about the events of world history and about its own literary origins under God. 
than it is in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. This is an interesting statement. What they're trying to say here is that, and this is a very important issue today because this has been one of the things that some who have started to push away from biblical inerrancy and infallibility have tried to put forward. The idea is this. Well, some people have said these things. You know, the Bible is, is true and right as long as it handles spiritual matters, but in matters of history and matters of science and matters of all this stuff, it's not always right. There are problems there. But I have a problem with that statement. <laughs> it, while it's true that the Bible is not primarily a history book, nor a mathematics or science or philosophy textbook, because what is it ultimately? It's God's revelation to man about who he is and what he's done. The Bible is ultimately about him. It's his glorious, gracious gift to man to tell us about who he is and what he's done. So while it is not primarily a science or philosophy or mathematics or a history textbook, whenever the Bible intersects with these subjects, it does so truthfully and accurately without error. You see, if we can't trust the Bible when it recounts a historical event, what makes you think you can trust it when it talks about spiritual things? All of the Bible is trustworthy. For it all comes from God. God who never errs. And God who does not lie. In Article 14 of the Affirmations and Denials, they say this. We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved speak against the truth claims of the Bible. Okay. Having set that as a preface, this gets us to the heart of what we're doing here in the Harmony of the Gospels. It also helps us shed light on what is our burden of proof when answering questions from critics regarding the Bible. I think it's good and right to admit from the outset that we do not have all the details of the events that the Bible records. There are many details that are left out. Many details that we have not been given. We've been given what the Lord intended to give us. There are good many things that the Lord has chosen not to reveal or record to us. John said in the last verse of his gospel, and there are also many other things which Jesus did. I believe that if they were, if they were written in detail, not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. What's John saying? I have selected the things that have been recorded here. If we were to record everything that Jesus did, not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. The Lord is under no obligation to give us all the details. Sometimes critics of the Bible will criticize some aspect of its historical recounting on the base of lack of evidence. For example, there have been times throughout history where people have said, well, you know, the Bible talks about Jericho and we don't have any evidence of that, or the Bible talks about this city and we don't have any evidence of that archaeologically and all the rest. It's quite interesting that in more recent years, some of these supposed cities that they've never found, they've actually found. This is why that the Chicago statement is saying, just because right now you can't solve the dilemma doesn't mean that there isn't a solution. So even in those moments, we trust God's word, not our futile abilities to try to put together all these various things. The point is that alleged errors or discrepancies not yet resolved to someone's satisfaction does not mean that there's not an answer which we just haven't 
understood as of yet. So what do we have to do in response to questions like this? What, what is our burden of proof? I think this is an important thing to think through. You know, in a court of law, you, uh, how many of you have been uh, selected for the glorious task of jury duty? How many of you have gotten to, okay, I see some hands, yeah. And, and depending on what kind of case you're dealing with, you're given instructions on what the burden of proof is, right? So if we have some sort of civil thing and there's, a, there's an argument between two people, what is the burden of proof that usually has to happen? Just a preponderance of evidence, right? You have, you have to decide, which one do you believe more? <laughs> which one do you think was really wrong? Which way does it go? And it's just like 51%, 49%. That's all we need. We have to come to a decision one way or the other. Now, in a criminal case, what's the burden of evidence? Beyond a? Not a shadow of a doubt, a reasonable doubt. Yes, 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 a reasonable doubt. And this is one of those things that, you know, the lawyers are going to make, make big clear is that, you know, it's not that we can remove all doubt. I mean, how could they remove all doubt if you weren't there at the scene, right? Let me actually say is like, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes, but then you'd be an eyewitness and you wouldn't be allowed on the jury. See? So no matter what, they can't remove all doubt, but the point is this, if they're not able to remove all reasonable doubts, then you're supposed to say that the person's not guilty, right? Okay, so it's important to have an understanding of what is an acceptable answer. What are we trying to accomplish here? And I even encourage you this, with this, if you're talking with a skeptic or an atheist or whatever, and they're dealing with something like this, it might be good to start with them before you go into a, launch into a big discussion. What would qualify for you as a good answer? <laughs> what are you requiring? Because they might say something like, well, I have to be there myself and see it with my own eyes. Okay, well, I can't do that for you. <laughs> you know, so, so why are we engaging in any further discussion? But for that matter, nobody deals with history that way. It's interesting that people will deny things like Jesus' resurrection, something that's attested by so many different ways. We're going to talk about this a little bit further in coming weeks as well. But meanwhile, won't doubt, like, for example, the historical reality that George Washington was our first president or that the Civil War happened or these sorts of things. Anyway, what do we not have to do here? Well, we don't have to answer questions that the Bible doesn't provide us information with. And I also don't have to provide irrefutable proof regarding a reconstruction of events. We don't have to do that. We can't do that. All that we have to do to show that something in the Bible is not a contradiction is to provide a possible way by which these things can be reconciled. Just a possible. It doesn't even have to be probable. Although I believe that the more probable, the more believable it is, right? To be honest, when we're talking about logical contradiction, the only thing we have to provide is a means, a possible way by which these things could fit together. And so this morning, I'd like to mention two quick possible, and I also think very probable ways in which we can harmonize the events of these four Gospels as they recount the early um, discovery of the empty tomb. Shepard harmonizes it this way. There's a resurrection. There's an earthquake. There's an angel and an open tomb. There's a group of women who are getting ready very early. It's called, and we got even a description of one of the Gospels, that it's deep dawn. While it's yet dark, Mary runs ahead of these ladies, finds the tomb empty, and runs immediately back to tell Peter and John, as John 20 verses 1 and 2 describe. The other women complete the two-mile walk from Bethany to the tomb, arriving a little bit after the rising of the sun, as Mark 16, 2 says. An angel suddenly appears to them and gives them an urgent message for the disciples. Meanwhile, another party of women come later and see two young men dressed in white 
at the tomb and receive words of comfort and instruction as is recorded in Luke 24. Peter and John then arrive. Mary, returning a little bit later, then sees two angels. The other women bear this message to the other disciples, and Jesus then reveals himself to Mary and then to the other women. There is a possible way in which all those details can be fit together. Here's another way. This is done by Breen. A group of women, including Mary Magdalene, set out towards the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. They discuss the problem of moving the stone, and they arrive just as the sun begins to rise. Meanwhile, an earthquake has happened, an angel has descended, the guards are stunned, and they run off to report to the chief priests what's happened. The women see the stone is rolled away. And upon seeing the stone rolled away, Mary immediately runs away to go and tell Peter and John. The rest of the women still on the scene enter into the tomb. They don't see Jesus' body. Then suddenly they see an angel and even another one. The women are told by one of the angels that Jesus has risen. And they're given a message to bring back to the disciples. With special notice for Peter. That they need to meet him in Galilee. The women have mixed emotions. They have fear and joy. They run to tell the disciples. But the fear of ridicule and persecution causes them to say nothing to anyone along the way until they reach the disciples. On the way, Jesus meets them and he calms their fears. And they tell the disciples, but their news is not immediately believed. Meanwhile, Mary has found Peter and the other disciple who run to see this for themselves. One outruns the other, but eventually both go in, and they see the linen cloth and the folded napkin, and then the other disciple believes, and they both go back home. Mary Magdalene then arrives back at the tomb, remaining after the other disciples have left. She looks into the tomb and sees two angels. Then she's visited by Jesus himself and is given a message from him. Now, my point in sharing both of those is to not make a dogmatic claim about these events. I'm not saying it was either one of those necessarily, but to demonstrate means by which the Gospels can report different details and aspects of the happenings and not contradict one another. I mean, if we knew all the circumstances, I'm sure that the, that the manner in which all the details fit would become quite clear to us. But even in a very interesting way here, the varying details of the accounts actually stand up as evidence to the reality of what was recorded. Just think about it this way. Let's, let's work this. You have to, have to think about this in reverse. If this was all a hoax, if it was all a setup by the disciples, you can be sure that they would have published the lie and made sure that the lie was the same everywhere. We've got to make sure this lie gets out there and everybody hears the same thing. If this was an elaborate hoax, they certainly wouldn't have the first eyewitnesses be women in that culture. Women's words and testimony weren't even given much weight at all at that time. So now having set kind of a rough chronology, with the remaining time I have, I want to divide these first events of the Resurrection Sunday into three parts. The resurrection, the discovery, and the corroboration. Let's first of all consider the resurrection quickly. What happens? Matthew 28 is the only place that records exactly what what transpires here. We're told in verse 2, Behold, a great earthquake had happened, for an angel of the Lord, having come down from heaven, and having come, rolled away the stone and was sitting upon it, And his appearance was as lightning and his clothing white as snow. 
Just as Jesus' death was attended by supernatural phenomenon, so is his resurrection. The earth quakes, an angel from heaven comes, rolls away the stone, sits upon the stone, and his appearance is like lightning. His clothing is white, washed as, as snow. And while the earth quakes, we see hearts shake. Verse 4, now from the fear of him, the guards shook because, and they became as dead men. Now, these guards have been placed in front of the tomb to prevent access. Remember the Jewish leadership who remembered what Jesus had said about rising again from the dead on the third day? They want to make sure that the disciples don't steal Jesus' body and that the last deception be worse than the first. So they station guards. They seal the stone. The guards are ready for any attempt that someone might make to gain entry on the tomb. They do whatever it took to keep anyone from getting in. But what the guards were utterly unprepared for and untrained for was for someone to come out of the tomb. They couldn't keep Jesus in the ground. And they couldn't prevent an angel from moving the stone. No doubt these soldiers had either witnessed what had happened when Jesus was crucified. Or they had heard the strange phenomena that had happened in the connection with his death. But now they're confronted with an earthquake. And an angel of the Lord coming down from heaven, rolling away the stone and now sitting upon it. And the soldiers are undone. Having been physically shaken by the earthquake, their courage now melts. As their hearts shake with fear of the angel, we're told they become as dead men. What a fascinating phrase. See, though dead, Jesus rises to life, while these guards, though alive, become as though dead. It's just a prelude of coming events, though, isn't it? What will be the scene when the Lord Jesus comes back in his full glory? And he judges the living and the dead. Men will become as dead men before him. This is why we're concerned to call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. While there's still time, you don't want to meet a holy God apart from being in the mediator, Jesus Christ. These guards become as dead men. In the presence of one angel. What do you think wicked and ungodly men will do in the presence of the Holy One? We move to the next set of witnesses, a group of ladies, and we see their discovery. The discovery. First of all, we note their service, the service of faithful women. We were told in Luke 23 that they had gathered spices and, and, and uh, perfumes together, but they rested over the Sabbath, and now they're coming. First thing, even before daybreak, they gather their stuff, and they start traveling to the tomb. It was early in the morning. It was still dark outside. They got their supplies together, and they began their trip. They knew where to go. Remember, these ladies had attended. They had watched where Joseph of Arimathea had put Jesus' body. There's no mistaking which tomb he was in. He was in the brand-new tomb that no one had ever been placed in before, and he's the only body in that tomb, and there's a big stone in front of the door, and there's guards stationed out front. You know which tomb it is. There's no possibility of mistaking which tomb, as some critics and some of those aberrant theories have been pushed forward. They knew exactly where Jesus was. It's quite possible that there was more than one group of ladies who went to visit Jesus' tomb as well, which might have arrived at different times, which could explain some of the different numbers of angels that were seen and all the rest. We see such wonderful loyalty by these ladies. They want to give this further service unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We see their depth of love for him. They're willing to suffer any consequences that might come to them by identifying with Jesus and wishing to bestow further gifts upon him. And in order to appreciate this scene, 
we know the rest of the story, right? So we know where this is going. But imagine for just a moment you're one of those ladies and you're going to the tomb. What are you feeling? What's going through your heart? You're heartbroken. You're depressed. All of your hope was in this man. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. They're sorrowful. They're mourning. They're wanting to bring something unto Jesus it's so kind of ragtag. They don't even know how they're going to move the stone. They haven't even thought through that accommodation. They're going to show up. They can't move the stone. Like, I don't know how we're going to handle that, but we're going anyway. They just want to be there. They want to be near. They came exhausted, depressed, mourning. They came without hope. When I think about that, isn't that a great description of how all of us come to Jesus? Depressed, exhausted. Morning. Without hope. But these women are given a glorious surprise. And so are all who come to the Lord in poverty of spirit. They're given a glorious surprise as well. They come and they find an empty tomb. While traveling, these women had wondered, how are we going to roll the stone away? They haven't made any accommodations for it, but the Lord has already taken care of it. He accomplishes what they couldn't. Again, I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. God does what we can't. He makes a way where there isn't a way. They were worried about something that they had no need to be worried about. Because neither did they even have to perform the act of service they came to do that day. The stone, by the way, was not rolled away in order for Jesus to rise. We see later that Jesus' resurrection body, he can walk right through walls. He can walk right through a stone. The stone isn't rolled away because Jesus needs the stone rolled away in order to come out of the tomb. He he rises from the dead. He can certainly come through the wall, right? He can come through a, a rock. It's rolled away to furnish proof to all men that he was no longer there. Edersheim notes to have left the stone there, then the tomb, the tomb, when the tomb was empty, would have implied what was no longer true. Jesus had risen He also comments that there's a sublime irony in the contrast between man's elaborate precautions and the ease with which the divine hand can sweep them aside. They put this massive stone, and that might have been helpful to hold out the wild beasts. They put a guard of soldiers there, which might have deterred men from disturbing the tomb, but neither of those precautions could keep Jesus in the grave. Large stones are as stubble. The hearts of the most hardened soldiers melt in the presence of God. Psalm 2 makes me think, why are the nations in an uproar? The people devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Meanwhile, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Psalm 46.6, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The problem that these women were worrying about was no longer an obstacle. The service that they intended to perform was no longer applicable. They came looking for Jesus among the dead, but he wasn't there. The Lord had another plan in store. He had a glorious surprise waiting for them. These women came looking and seeking Jesus, the one having been crucified, but instead they came and discovered that the one who had been crucified was now risen from the dead. And they're greeted next with an angelic messenger. The women are 
bewildered already by the sight. The tomb is open. The guards are seemingly departed. The body of Jesus is missing. They're perplexed. They're filled with questions. What has happened? And then suddenly this next surprise, entering the tomb, they're confronted with messengers from God, angels. And as is typical for both men and women, the presence of angels, they are quickly greatly afraid and they bow their heads to the ground. But the angelic message is a life-changing one. Angels say, do not fear. Do not be alarmed. I know who you came looking for. You came looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, the one having been crucified. But he's not here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said he would. In the words of Morris, they were not facing a situation in which Jesus had undergone a totally unexpected fate and had experienced an unanticipated deliverance. Both Jesus' death and resurrection are according to plan. He prophesied these things would happen on several occasions before this. This is why these ladies need no longer fear. For Jesus is risen. Their Savior is alive. Is that not also the reason why we as Christians no longer fear? For our Savior has risen. Our Savior is alive. The angel says, come see the place where he was laid. See for yourself. Consider the evidence. And then he says, and then go quickly and tell the disciples. Interesting, Mark adds, and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. You'll see him just as he told you. The Lord will meet with his disciples. He's going to have meetings before that as well, but he's going to have final meetings with them in Galilee. He's going to take them back to the place where they kind of all got together in the first place, and he's going to give them final instructions before his ascension to his father. It's Mark's gospel that makes special note of Peter. I think this is such a glorious little note. It's quite possible many people believe that a lot of Mark's gospel actually comes from Peter talking to Mark. And so if that is the case, Peter's sure to mention this, that the angel said, and Peter. It's It's a statement of the Lord's love for Peter. Remember, what was the last thing that Peter had done with Jesus? Denied him three times. Denied him three times. He says... Go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter. He mentions Peter specifically by name. What a wonderful love of our Savior. Remember Jesus had already told Peter, Satan's desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that that your faith will not fail and you, once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. I know you're going to fail, Peter. Remember Peter denies it adamantly. I'll never deny you. Everyone else will, but I'll never. I'll die for you, Jesus. And we see Peter... Denying Jesus three times, and at least one of those times to a little slave girl. It might be that Peter is somewhat away from the group after his denials. Perhaps he's being visited by John, which sets up the next scene here, where we see John and Peter being told news by Mary Magdalene. But these women are told to go and tell. So it is for Christians all through the ages. What's our task, our commission? Go and tell! The same thing these ladies were told. In some sense, we might say that they were the first proclaimers of the gospel. The good news, Jesus is risen. Luke records two questions from the angel. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why are you seeking him here? I think the question's also fascinating. I wonder how many people today are seeking life among dead things. How many people are hoping for hope where there is no hope? You're looking in the wrong place, the angels say. He's not dead, he's risen. 
Don't look to dead things. Look to the Lord and Savior who is alive. Also, Luke records, remember, remember how he spoke to you while yet being in Galilee? He said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Do you remember Jesus said this? Do you believe what Jesus said? The angel is saying is, his words are true and trustworthy. Don't merely believe because you don't see a body in the tomb. Believe because Jesus said it. And his words are trustworthy. They're deserving of full acceptance. This is why we ourselves don't have to see the empty tomb. We have the word of God. What God has said is true. We see his interesting response. The angel tells them to not fear, yet we're told they depart with fear. <laughs> don't fear. But they depart with fear, and, and, but also note, and great joy. Fear and great joy. It fits the exhortation of Psalm 211. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. <laughs> Love that. With reverence, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Dory Ani points out, Something that anyone who's ever become a parent definitely understands. Do parents understand the concept of joy mixed with fear? A child is born and we're parents. Joy! But parents fear as they think, I'm not prepared for this. I don't know if I'm ready for this. These emotions are rightly joined in relationship to God as as he is. As sovereign king, we ought to fear and reverence him. But Also, as the gracious, merciful, loving, forgiving king, we're invited to partake of his joy. Fear and joy blended together. And these women become, as Augustine said, the first preachers of the resurrection. MacArthur notes, one commentator is asking the question, why was this news first given to women? Why first to women? MacArthur notes, One commentator suggests that it was because God chooses the weak to confound the strong. Another suggests that women were rewarded for their faithful service to the Lord in Galilee. Another holds that because death came by a woman in the garden, so new life was first announced to a woman in the garden. Others propose that it was because the deepest sorrow deserves the deepest joy, or that supreme love deserves supreme privilege. Scripture offers no such explanations. Perhaps the most straightforward answer is, these are the people who were there. <laughs> who was there? They were there. They were the ones coming to attend to the Lord. And instead they found themselves ministered to by him. I find this also fascinating. I think it's a good analogy to what happens on a Sunday morning, any Sunday morning in which the church gathers. Those who are present receive a blessing for attending to the things of God. Not because they're more worthy than other people, but simply because by God's grace, they are there when the Lord brings forth his message. Who's present when God speaks? Not because they're something special, but by God's grace, they've been afforded this glorious opportunity to hear the message that God has to give. Finally, we see a third set of witnesses. We see a corroboration. We see additional witnesses brought in. Mary goes and reports to Peter and the other disciple. And, and this can be understood, as I said earlier, either. The other way you can understand is that Mary sees and hears the angel, but like is still struggling with disbelief. And so she goes and tells him, like, the body's gone. I don't know what to say. The body's gone. I prefer the reconstruction where Mary 
either gets there earlier or gets there with the other ladies. And as soon as seeing the, the stone rolled away, she runs back and tells them on the basis of just having seen the stone rolled away, not having heard the angelic announcement. It's interesting that she finds John with Peter. I wonder if John pursued Peter after Peter's denials. Remember, it was John and Peter who were the closest to Jesus um, through most of his ministry, but also in the courtroom and all of the rest of those proceedings. Whatever the reason, by God's providence, now God would provide two men to come and see the tomb. By Jewish standards, you needed two witnesses. And remember, because of the way that oftentimes women were discounted their testimonies, two male witnesses. Well, here we see God providing that very thing. We note this in John 20. Peter and the other disciple, most likely John, I'll just refer to him as John from here on, run to the tomb. John, the younger of the two men, outran Peter, but stopping short of entering the tomb, he stoops and looks in. Perhaps he's had some reverence for that place or some apprehension or maybe some respect toward Peter that he doesn't enter. But Peter, as soon as he arrives on the scene, the ever-impulsive Peter has no problem just rushing right on in. I'm going to figure out what's going on here. Some of us are more like John. Some of us are more like Peter, right? He has to get the full picture. The mystery has to be brought into the clear. These sorts of details, by the way, screen personal eyewitness. Like, what's the theological you know, gleanings that we get that one man got to the tomb first and then the other one got there but then traveled in first? There's not like a big theological, like, woo, like we learned something incredible about that, you know? Make some allegorical spiritualizing of that. It's just, it just eyewitness detail. It just furthers the historicity of the event. Who would share something like that? It's kind of like the gospel sharing that when the people sat down on the, uh, the, um, when Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, they, they sat in groups on the green grass. Why mention green grass? Like, why is it there? It's just, it's just part of eyewitness testimony. One of the things that identifies testimony as being eyewitness is that there's added details that are unnecessary. Because just when we share a story, we share unnecessary details. My wife will tell you that's my problem. I share lots of unnecessary unnecessary details. But it just lends further credibility. You were there. You saw it. This is is how you tell the story. They examine the scene. Linen cloths are there that were used to wrap Jesus' body. They're lying there. And they notice the face cloth has been neatly folded off by itself in a place by itself. As if to say, I have no longer any need of this. The evidence on scene speaks against what would be otherwise the two quickest things that might have been assumed. Number one, that some grave robber came in to steal Jesus's, the stuff around Jesus. If it was a grave robber who had no reverence for Jesus but just wanted stuff, he would have taken the linen and he would have taken the spices. But it's all there. It's left. The valuable stuff is left. And if it was somebody who had reverence for Jesus, they certainly wouldn't have unwrapped his body bringing him naked out of the tomb. They certainly wouldn't have carefully folded the napkin and placed it there. No one would have treated it that way. It's for this reason John says, based upon that alone, he goes, John believes Jesus is risen. It's all this interesting additional detail in John's gospel. He says that by this point, they didn't understand the scriptures. So John isn't arriving at this as a result of, oh yeah, Jesus said all this stuff. He's just looking at the evidence. He's like, he's risen. He's risen from the dead. Later on, they'll come to realize the fulfillment of so much prophecy in this. Just quick note. This is so often the nature of prophecy in Scripture. Isaiah even goes to great lengths to describe this. God is very careful in how he gives prophecy. 
I think it's because he knows our sinful hearts. When God gives prophecy, he gives enough such that when the thing happens, it's undeniable that God said it. God's like, I called that. I said that it would happen like that. And when we look at it, when we look back, we're like, you know, how often do we do that in the Gospels? Like, how did you not see that? You know, like, so obvious to us, right? But that's because we had this advantage of living at a latter time looking back on the events. And I only mention this to say, it's wise that we always maintain proper amounts of humility when we talk about prophetic words that God has given regarding end-time events, things that have not happened yet. I really do believe this. When they happen, it will be undeniable that God has brought them to pass. You'll know, oh man, obvious. It will be completely obvious. But on this side of that, I'm not saying don't study eschatology. I'm not saying don't study last things. There's all kinds of things to be learned. But hold them humbly and let's be gracious with one another as we walk through that together. J.C. Ryle says, it's a striking circumstance that of all the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so incontrovertibly established as the fact that he rose again. The wisdom of God who knows the unbelief of human nature has provided a great cloud of witnesses on the subject. Never was there a fact which the friends of God were so, which were so slow to believe as the resurrection of Jesus. Never was there a fact which the enemies of God were so anxious to disprove. And yet, in spite of all the unbelief of friends and all the enmity of foes, the fact was thoroughly established. His evidences will always appear to a fair and impartial mind as unanswerable. It would be impossible to prove anything in the world if we refused to believe that Jesus rose again. And he writes this, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this sort of thing. Nobody would have invented it. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. See, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what gives us good news to share. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins and we're awaiting judgment and there is no hope for us. If Christ is not raised, our preaching and our faith is all vanity. It's all in vain. But Jesus did rise again. And the empty tomb forever bears witness to that fact. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious news of an empty tomb that our Lord and Savior, who really died and was really buried, really rose from the dead on the third day. Because of Resurrection Sunday, Friday before that, the Friday preceding that is a good Friday. For we know then that the sacrifice was sufficient, that Jesus' blood was enough, that it truly can cleanse the deepest sin. It can make the foulest sinner clean. Lord, thank you that you have done this great task of redemption. There would be no hope for us otherwise. Lord, I pray that we would 
consistently stand upon your unshakable, infallible, inerrant word. We pray that you be glorified as we worship you. Pray in Jesus' name.